with you. Join me, if you would, in your copy of God's Word of John chapter 14. John 14. As you're turning there, let me share with you one of my favorite stories from the New Testament. It involves Jesus performing the miraculous and Peter taking an incredible step of faith. Jesus had just fed the 5,000 from just five loaves of uh, bread and two fish. And after feeding the 5,000, he puts his disciples in the boat, sends them across the sea, and then he goes and dismisses the crowd and he heads up the mountain to pray, to be alone and pray. And hours later, that boat still hasn't made it to the other side. Waves are beating up against it and they're rowing and rowing really to no avail, not making as much progress as you would think. And Jesus catches up to them walking on the water. Like you and I would be, the disciples were scared, thinking they had seen a ghost, right? He calmed them down with the sound of his voice and said, Take heart. It's I. Don't be afraid. He could have just as easily have said something else. He could have said something like, Let not your hearts be troubled. Back in the boat with a wave still pounding up against the front of this thing, Peter looks out at Jesus walking on the water and says, Jesus, if that's really you, command me to come out there. And Jesus says, come. And here goes Peter. Steps, steps out of the boat and walks on the water toward Jesus. And somewhere in between step one and the subsequent steps necessary to make it to Jesus... Peter surveyed the scene. The scriptures say that he, he saw the wind, he became afraid, and began to sink. I don't know how you begin to sink, I just think he sank, right? But as he begins to sink, he cries out to Jesus and said, Lord, save me. Jesus reached out his hand, pulls Peter up, and he says to Peter, Oh, you of little faith. Then he says this, Why did you doubt? They got back in the boat and immediately the wind stops and everybody then in the boat worships God and worships God through Jesus, right? Consider this for a moment. Peter stepped out of the boat by faith with his eyes fixed on Jesus and he walked on the water. And then Peter looked around, sees the wind, and sinks. Bringing this home for a second. Regardless of my circumstance, faith demands that my sight remains focused not on the wind, but on Jesus and His precious promises. And that is the sermon in a nutshell. I share this story right at the beginning this morning because in our text that we're studying here in John chapter 14, we find Jesus in the middle of His final conversations with His disciples, the final conversation He'll have before He's arrested and then crucified on a cross. And with all that Jesus had shared at that Last Supper to His disciples, the disciples are grieved, they're confused, and they're worried. 
I mean, understandably, they've been told again that Jesus was leaving them. They've just learned that one of their very own would betray him. And that Peter, the unofficial leader of the whole group of disciples and spokesman for the group, would, would eventually, and before that night ended, would deny him three times. Peter! I and mean, think about what they're thinking at that table. If, if Peter would do that, what about? So their hearts were troubled. And borrowing from the psalmist in Psalm chapter 42, their, their souls, their souls were downcast. Let me speak to you individually as if we were alone together, one-on-one -on -one here. Do I need to convince you that troubling times and seasons of despondency will come to you as well? Of course I don't. But in that room, Jesus offered His disciples comfort. And He offered them much needed counsel so that their troubling circumstances would not wreck their already vulnerable faith. It would not be their last dark season. Nor will whatever you're walking through at this moment be your potentially last dark season. But the comfort and counsel that Jesus gave to His disciples is for us also. We are not immune to troubling circumstances. We are not immune to troubling waters. So when we lean in and listen to this final conversation in the upper room with Jesus and His disciples, it's for us. So let me direct your attention to John chapter 14. I'm, I'm going to read verse 1 and then read the rest of it as I come to it this morning but we'll eventually make our way through the first 11 verses of John 14. Here's how he begins. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. Let's pray. Jesus, please, Lord, increase our faith in you and increase our faith in Your Word. Help us concentrate our faith in God through You, Jesus. Teach us, I pray, to live confidently in You while on earth until we are physically present with You in heaven. In Jesus' name, Amen. Let's walk through this passage. I've put some notes. Xander's going to help us by putting them on the screen. The first one you'll see is, is this. The antidote... For a troubled heart is faith. The antidote for a troubled heart is faith. And more particularly, the antidote for a troubled heart is faith in Jesus. Let not your hearts be troubled. So I want to begin our walk through this passage by reminding you of three different times when Jesus himself was troubled at heart. And you're thinking, well, isn't that a contradiction? Well, we'll see here because we've, we would have seen it first in John chapter 11, verse 33. You'll remember this. Lazarus, Jesus' dear friend, 
has just died and Mary is weeping, as are everyone, all the people that have gathered around weeping. Jesus was deeply moved in his spirit and the scriptures say that he was greatly troubled. John eleven thirty three. The next time we'll see that about Jesus is John chapter 12, verse 27. Knowing his hour was near, John writes, Jesus said, now is my soul troubled. The third time we've already seen in our study through this upper room discourse, but it happened in John chapter 13, verse 21. After Jesus had washed the feet of his disciples, he took his place back at the table, and before telling them that one of them would deny him, John records that Jesus was troubled in his spirit. Let not your hearts be troubled, Jesus said. One author points out that these shock waves that Jesus has just experienced, and we've just read from 11, 12, and 13, these shock waves of despondency broke the tranquility of soul of Jesus. That's what, that's what it means to be troubled in heart. Did Jesus battle in his mind? Rhetorical questions, right? Would he have wrestled with thoughts and questions in his mind? Hey, is, is all of this worth it? Will this actually work? Can I trust the Father? I don't necessarily want to plant that idea in your mind about Jesus because no reason to think that was the case. However, though I cannot say that certain about Jesus, that he wrestled with those potentially sidetracking thoughts when such troubling circumstances occurred. But I can confess, and maybe you can affirm about yourself, that I, I find myself in such mental and spiritual battles, even on the daily, right? Well, in verse 1 here, Jesus is not teaching us that troubling circumstances won't come into the life of believers. But He is teaching something. He's teaching as He modeled that we are not without hope and we are not without confidence in the faithfulness and trustworthiness of God. Let not your hearts be troubled, He writes. And then He quickly follows up. Believe in God. Believe also in Me. Jesus is telling his disciples, and we see it clearly right here off the page, even there at that table, even gripped as they were with sorrow, gripped as they were with heaviness, he's saying, listen, concentrate your belief in God on and through me. To concentrate our belief in God through Jesus does not transfer our trust to an improper object. But what it does do, it transfers it from the unseen one to the incarnate son. That's what Jesus is saying right there in the dinner, at, at dinner. He's saying, you believe in God? Believe also in me. Focus, concentrate, fix your trust in God through me whom you've seen. Because if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And Jesus then proceeds 
to comfort them by directing their attention to their heavenly home that awaits every born-again believer. So check this out in verses 2 through 4. These are the passages, the, the verses that we are accustomed to hearing at a funeral, right? Notice how Jesus offers comfort. This is comfort from the suffering servant. And don't miss out on the fact, this is our sidebar for the moment. Don't miss out on the fact that Jesus, fully cognizant of what is lying ahead for him, is showing concern and desiring to comfort others in the midst of that. Look how he does it. He says, In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself that where I am you may be also. And you know the way to where I'm going. In the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 7, verse 14, Jesus says this, The gate is narrow, and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. However, here Jesus says that those who are saved by faith, for them, there's plenty of room in heaven. This world is not our home. Jesus has gone to prepare a place for us. And listen, listen Jesus would not go and prepare a place without also having the concrete plan in his next agenda and in his trajectory to come back and to receive us to himself. Why? So we could enjoy his presence forever. Consider this, while Jesus is in heaven preparing a dwelling place for us, the Holy Spirit is preparing us for heaven. While Jesus is in, while he's in heaven preparing a place for us, the Holy Spirit is preparing us for heaven. And don't miss out on the grace that our tough circumstances are in the way he's using them to conform us into the image of Jesus. However, before we move on to the final section this morning and look at some questions that people asked of Jesus at the table, let me point out how Jesus, and you'll see it in verse 4, how he told his disciples, you know the way to where I'm going. Look at 14 verse 6. I'm sorry, verse 4. And you know to where the way to where I'm going, he writes. And they did know the way. Because the way is a person. This prompted the first of a couple of questions in a Q&A session that follows. The Q&A session actually began before Jesus says, let not your heart be troubled. Because as you'll recall, Peter had opened up his mouth and asked a question to Jesus. And Jesus responded with those disheartening words to him in the hearing of everyone. Listen, you can't go where I'm going now. And in fact, you're going to deny me three times, Peter. 
Then he goes through this discourse where we've just looked at, let not your hearts be troubled, believe in God, believe also in me. And then the questions begin to fly. No longer will Peter speak in the upper room. But this guy named Thomas will. So here comes a question from Thomas. History will refer to Thomas as doubting Thomas, right? Notice in verse 5, Thomas says to the Lord, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? Thomas is confused about Jesus' destination and his route. Bless Shan's heart for the times that she and I have been the recipients of driving directions, especially years before you could punch things in on your phone, right? And you just get directions and it would tell you to turn right, turn left. But I, as I'm listening to people give directions, if I stop to the side of the road and say, hey, can you tell me how to get to so-and-so? And they're talking. And, or you go by the oak tree and you do this, that, and the other. And then you take a ride at the creek. And when you get to the fork, do all this. And I'm just nodding my head, yes, and I get all of this. Perfect, thank you. Then we get in the car and I'll look over at Shan and say, did you, did, you, did you get any of that? I live in a state of confusion as it relates to destinations and routes, and Thomas is no different here. On one hand, however, Thomas's question's legit. But on another hand, there's a major problem with this question that's been adopted by millions of people all around the world. And I want to chat about that. The question is legit in the sense that Thomas wants to be where Jesus is, wherever it is that he's going. But the problem would have been with, with Thomas's question, had Thomas with his question been saying, hey, just tell me the directions and I'll get there myself. Jesus isn't texting the address to heaven so people can punch it into Google Maps and get there on their own, but the world lives like they can. There's only one way to the Father, and that way is Jesus. In the Old Testament, Abraham had a son. His name was Isaac. Isaac had two boys, and their names were Esau and Jacob. One day Jacob was traveling actually back from where he had sojourned back to his home and he has this dream. And in this dream, he sees a ladder that extended from heaven down to earth and traveling up and down that ladder were the angels of God. John opens up his book in chapter 1 and he it is there that Jesus is comparing himself to a ladder. A ladder that spanned from heaven down to earth. That is not a ladder that you and I can climb ourselves. Jesus came down to redeem us. And he will come down again to take us to himself. He alone is the way to the Father. So Thomas asked this question. Lord, we don't know where you're going. So how can we know the way? And then Jesus offers this instructive response. And you'll see it in the following verses. Listen to how Jesus responds to Thomas. Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. 
No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. And from now on you do know him and you have seen him. Back in the 1400s, Thomas Akempis wrote a devotional book, one of the most widely published and printed devotional books in all of Christendom. It's called The Imitation of Christ. And in that devotional book, he writes these words. Without the way, there is no going. Without the truth, there is no knowing. And without the life, there is no living. Now later this very night that Jesus has just said this, Jesus would go on to share with His disciples that, listen, the world will hate, He doesn't use the word Christians, but the world will hate you, in essence. And then He goes on to say, they'll hate you because they hate Me. One big reason that the world will hate believers, one one big reason that they will hate the redeemed, one, one reason that they'll hate Christ followers is because we have the audacity to tell them that there's only one way to God. And that one way to God is through His, Jesus, His Son, Jesus. And this news, this declaration, this proclamation is not only foolishness to those who are perishing, but it's also inciting of anger to those who have rejected it. Or, more specifically, those who want to define their own way to get to God. Some of the troubling circumstances that we can anticipate, not only finances going awry or or challenges with our families or in our marriages or troubling times at work, but some additional troubling circumstances that we can anticipate in which Jesus is counseled to not let our hearts be troubled, believe in God, believe also in me, would be appropriately applied. But some of those troubling circumstances that we can anticipate will stem from this proclamation. If we as believers are willing to proclaim it, whether it be to strangers to whom we share this, or friends or family members, we ought not be shocked when it's rejected or when it spurs attack. In those times, however, you and I must resolve to not let our hearts be troubled, but to believe in God by concentrating our belief in God through His Son, Jesus. That brings us up to the final question. This one's a question asked by Philip. Notice what he asked. It's really not a question. It's a question in the form of a statement. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it's enough for us. Does Philip want the Father apart from the Son? We don't really know if this is intention, but Jesus makes it very clear that this is not how it works. Notice these instructive response from Jesus starting in verse 9. Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long that you do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? 
The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does His works. Believe me that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. You cannot have the Father apart from Christ. The question, the statement, show us the Father. As you and I learned as we studied and walked through the book of Colossians, if you've seen Jesus, you've seen God because Jesus is the image of the invisible God. When you and I look to Jesus, we see the Father. The Father's words were spoken through Christ. So in other words, Jesus did not speak a word while on earth of His own authority. This is why I've I've pointed this out from the text. Whoever seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does His works. So the Father's words were spoken through Christ. And then notice this, the Father's works were performed through Jesus. This is important to see because it is so demonstrating of who God is. The works that God performed through Jesus fulfilled what the prophet Isaiah had promised and prophesied. Back in Isaiah 35 and 61, things were said that would ultimately be fulfilled in and through and by the suffering servant. Jesus mentioned these prophecies and these works specifically when he was asked a question by the disciples of John the Baptist. Think about this John the Baptist finds himself in a prison cell, a prison cell that he will not leave with his head attached to his body. So in those moments, I don't know how many moments, so hours, days for all I know, but in that season leading up to his assassination, his, his being put to death, I'm sure He himself is asking himself some questions. Did I hitch my wagon up to the wrong person? Was this really, was Jesus really the one who I was supposed to make straight the way for? Did I get it all wrong? Has this all been a farce? So he doesn't leave his questions internal, but sends his disciples and, hey, go find Jesus and ask him this question. Are you the one to come, or shall we look for another? And Jesus doesn't say, hey, go tell him I'm the one. Set his mind at ease. I'm that guy. But he quotes from the prophet Isaiah, two different places. And he says, go tell him this. The blind receive their sight. The lame walk. Lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up. The poor have good news preached to them. 
So in that upper room, that last supper, Jesus is telling Philip, listen, you were there when God performed these signs through me. Let the memory of those works fuel your faith as you walk through hard things. As you're walking through this hard thing. And hard things will keep coming. Jesus is encouraging them to remember the works and believe that He is who He says He is, if not because of His words, simply because of the works. And I think He's referring to these works that He referenced to John the Baptist. Why? Because they reveal who He was. You and I can have rest in our hearts if our focus remains on the antidote to troubled hearts. The antidote to a troubled heart is faith. In faith in Christ. The heaviness experienced in that upper room with Jesus. The troubled heart references of Jesus Himself. For Jesus, it did not stay there because His focus never left in spite of his circumstance, in spite of his heaviness of heart. It never left the faithfulness of his God, the purpose that he had been sent here to do, and his his eyes remained on his Father. In that room, Jesus seizes an opportunity knowing that his disciples were discouraged. They were low. Their hearts were heavy. But they, like us, can have rest in our hearts even in the midst of troubling times. I find myself most vulnerable to thoughts in my mind and angst in my heart as the sun goes down. More than likely, this is why we get the great hinge point of the book of Lamentations, where we learn about God that His mercies are new every morning. I try to remove my mind from fixating on my circumstances and see the faithfulness of God in the midst of my hard time. The hard time may not slip away in the night and it may be there awaiting me in the morning. But I need not own and and hold the onus of having that cleared from my experience in life instead of resting in the one who holds it. I want to offer you a few things, a few handles of how we can apply John 14, 1 through 11 to our own situations, our own circumstances that would lead us to have troubled hearts. Not that troubles won't knock on the door of our hearts, but that we would fight the fight of faith And have Christ be in and through us that which keeps the troubles and the troubling circumstances from dominating us and arresting our joy, 
and robbing us of the tranquility of heart. Three things. The first is this. Persist. I'll give you three words that will all end. I'll begin with the letter P just to help us remember it. Let me talk about the first one first. Let me challenge you in the midst of whatever circumstance is knocking on the door of your heart leading you to be troubled at heart. Persist in crying out to God. Keep looking to Christ even when your circumstances attempt to blind you from any sense of hope. Can I offer one more favorite story from the New Testament? This one found in Luke chapter 18, verse 35. There was a blind man in Jericho and Jesus was on His way there. And as was the case with all of the places Jesus went, a crowd, if, if wasn't following Him, gathered as He got there. And the streets of Jericho were no different. And the blind guy is sitting in the back, kind of edged out, and he hears the commotion, can't physically see. He's, just, he's, he's down where he may have been put. It, the story doesn't reveal this to us. But he hears the commotion and says, hey, what's going on? And he's told there's, that's Jesus. Jesus is coming. And from the back of the crowd and, and the people up front who have crowded the streets wanting a closer glimpse at Jesus, they, they, they've told him, but they weren't expecting what he does. But he yells out, Son of God, Son of Man, have mercy on me. Do you remember what the crowd did? Do you remember what the disciples did? Would you hush him up? Zip it. Luke chapter 18, verse 35. As he drew near to Jericho, a blind man was sitting by the roadside begging. And hearing a crowd going by, he inquired what this meant. And they told him, Jesus of Nazareth is coming by. And he cried out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And those who were in front rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But what does he do? But he cried out all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. What I'm challenging us to do is to persist in crying out to God in the midst of circumstances. Circumstances that would attempt to blind us from any hope. It should be ironic to us that the only person in the crowd that saw Jesus for what He could do is the dude who couldn't see. So when they tried to hush Him, all the more He yells out. Son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and commanded Him to be brought to Him. And when He came near, He asked Him, what do you want me to do for you? He said, Lord, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, recover your sight. You might be encouraged to hear that Jesus kept saying to him, your faith has made you well.
and immediately recovers his sight and follows him, glorifying God and all the people when they saw it, gave praise to God. In another occasion, Jesus encounters a Canaanite woman. The Canaanite woman comes up to him, begging him to do something for her. Heal my daughter who has been oppressed by a demon. You know what Jesus said to him, to her? Nothing. Silence. Zip. You know what she did? Kept crying out to Jesus. You know what the disciples did? Tried to hush her. He told the disciples, listen, I came for the children of Israel, and I'm paraphrasing here. And then he goes on and references her kind of like a dog. And she says, "Even even the dogs around the master's table can eat the crumbs underneath the table. And although there was silence at first, she kept crying out to Jesus. And as a result, Jesus heals her daughter. Persist. Persist in crying out to God in the midst of your troubling circumstance. And when it seems like silence is all that you're hearing in return, keep crying out to God because that's what faith does. This is not a promise that physical healing or a respite from your troubling circumstance will come. That's up to the Lord. But what you do have is the assurance that you can lay your request at Jesus because He cares for you. See what blind people see. Believe in God, believe also in me. Let not your heart be troubled. Persist in crying out. Second thing I would offer you is another P word. Preach. Preach the Gospel to yourself. We read it in Psalm 42 earlier together. Hope in God, and again I will praise Him. Even in the night watch, friends, when your mind is consumed with the circumstance, and maybe the circumstance that's consuming you feels a whole lot like the waves that are crashing up against the boat or against the feet of Peter that's causing him to sink. Do not listen to yourself. Preach to yourself. Because the counsel that is most helpful when faith is vulnerable is the Gospel and the Word of Christ. And rest yourself there as opposed to allowing the waves and torrents of your inner self to speak to you. You need help not from within, but from without. And that help is Jesus and His Word. Third and final thing. Partner. The word partner is another word for fellowship. And I've put this in here as a plug for us. Partner vulnerably with other believers here at Redeemer. Because again, 
Faith becomes most vulnerable when we're faced with troubling circumstances and we need each other. We need each other to love us enough to help us persist and preach. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank You for Jesus. Thank You for this encouragement that You have given us that we would not let our hearts be troubled, but that we would believe and we would trust by faith. Jesus, would You grow our faith in You Would you grow our confidence in your word and your precious promises so that when occasions as troubling circumstances come and when nights seem dark, would you allow us to rest in you and your word? May we walk by faith. May we exhibit godly courage in the midst of things that that are normative here. They are our experience here on earth because we're exiles here awaiting that time when You have completed the work by Your Spirit in us, preparing us for the home in heaven that You're preparing for us now. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.